Good morning, and welcome to Back to Church Sunday. What a great day that we celebrate the gift of Christian community, of church, of uh, friendships, and of what's at the center of our life, which is the grace that God gives us and makes us a perfect congregation. And we'll learn how and why we are a perfect congregation. Um, the, the story is, uh, in 1970, Apollo 13 had an explosion on board, and maybe you even know this history, maybe you've seen the movie, um, that cut off most of, and uh, where they lost most of their energy and oxygen. And the word came from their captain, Jim Lovell, down to Houston. Do you remember what he said? Say it. Houston, we have had a problem here is the exact words that he used, but it's misquoted in the movie. Now you have something for trivia night this week. All right. The American church, churches in America, have been a staple of our nation from the time that we were born a nation. Um, People went to church. But in the last 30 years, there's been a movement that has, and it's, it's obvious, it's in the reports too, that people are moving farther and farther away from the physical church building. A report came out this week by the Barna Group that studies these sort of things. And uh, the report said in the State of the Church Report 2016 that 73%, nearly 75% of Americans identify as Christian, okay? However, Of that group that identifies as Christian, as you can see on the graphic on the screen, 45% have not been to church in the last six months or have never been affiliated with a church. In other words, when you meet a Christian on the street in America, one out of two do not go to church or have never gone to church before as a Christian. Houston? And you might be expecting me to come down and harp on that unchurched group, right? Like, Pastor, you go tell them today. You go tell them that they got to be in church and, and they got to be in the walls of church and, and, and they need to get over here. But I'm not. That's a conversation for them. That's a conversation for another time. This morning, I want to focus on what we are as a church so that we as Christian Americans can understand again what a church is and why it's important. Okay? There's two things that we're going to look at in two parables that Jesus tells about how God wants his community to be and where he is in the community. So the two things that we're going to look at, keep these in your mind as we go through the parable. Number one, who did Jesus include in his community? Okay, Who did he include in his Christian community? Let's say that. And number two, where is God calling us to be as a church in this world? Statistics aside, we're going to look at these two areas so that we can be the church that God wants us to be. And uh, we can reach those people because that's what I think that stat is saying is there's more of a disconnect between the church and Christians today than there ever has been before. And before we get into the parable, I do want to talk to you about Jesus' church life. Not as something to make you feel guilty, but just a fact. Jesus loved going to worship with other people. In fact, from the time that he was born, his family brought him to worship regularly. 
And they even brought him to the big festivals in Jerusalem. Even though they lived in Nazareth, they brought him all the way over to Jerusalem. And as a family, they would go to church together. So we can assume that he was going to church on Saturdays with his family in the synagogue from week to week. And as a man, as a grown man, Jesus taught in the synagogues. And so Jesus inserted himself into the church because he knew that there was a benefit there. But here's the neat thing about Jesus. He also shook things up within the church by associating himself and making church a lot bigger than the people of those days knew it as and invited a whole new group of people that had never had a voice, that had been alienated from the church and were unchurched into Jesus' church. So think of those two um, thoughts as we go into the text. Here's the text. It's from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Now, the tax collectors, okay, tax collectors, notorious cheaters, think about being on file of um, the most corrupt IRS agent, okay? And they're going through all of your stuff. This is what a tax collector was back then. They would skim money off the top, and they were a traitor on top of that because they were Jewish people hired by the other side, the Roman government, to take money from their fellow Jews. So these are bad guys. And sinners, think about prostitutes, thieves, robbers, drunkards, people that had absolutely no standing in society, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Okay, it says that these people who had no place in society, they were the scum of the earth and certainly would never be invited into church. Or if they were invited to church, everybody would turn like this and look all at once and they felt this big. They were all coming. Pantes, it says in the Greek, all gathering around Jesus. Because Jesus had a message for them. Jesus had a community with them. And Jesus resonated with them. Never before had they heard that, that, that God's unconditional love included them. That wasn't being taught in the church. Or if it was being taught, it wasn't being applied. And so the speculation of the church leaders that we're about to get to, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you can understand why they're being skeptical of Jesus. Jesus is creating a community. Remember our first question? His community includes sinners and the worst of the sinners. Verse 2 says, But the Pharisees, you can think about the Pharisees as like a, a religious political party. There's a couple sects within Judaism, and this was one of them, a very powerful political party, I'll say, within that, that religion. And the teachers of the law, I like to compare those to being like religious code compliance. They're combing through the neighborhoods, making sure everybody knows the rules of the Bible, and then making sure everybody is applying those rules in their life. Muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Two times in the New Testament is that word muttered used, and both times it's used, it's used to speculate. To raise the eyebrow at Jesus a little bit and say, you eat with them? Like the school cafeteria, mean girls. But it's more than it's just a high school click here. Jesus is welcoming sinners, they said. Welcoming in the Greek means this, it means to receive favorably. And to tell you the truth, uh, welcoming is easier than anything else. And I, and I find that easier in my life, too. So if I knock on a door, if I see you and you haven't been in church in a while, I said, hey, come on, let's go. Come to church this week. Services at 8 and 1045 or to a stranger. Hey, come to my church. I'd love to see you there. Welcoming is the easy part because I can welcome you to my church 
And then all of a sudden I say, all right, see you later. I got things to do. I'm out of here. That's welcoming them to my church. Um, Jesus welcomes them, but then what does it say he does? He welcomes them and he eats with them. I see you, Joyce, and you prepared a couple meals in your lifetime. It takes time, right, for all of you cooks. It takes an investment. It takes setting a date. It takes getting a list of people to invite. It takes an investment in who you're going to invite. It's going to take shopping. It's going to take cooking and the doorbell rings. And for the next three hours, you're going to be investing your life with another person. Laughing, crying, listening, learning, sitting at a table with one another. It, it, it's what we do today. And back then, it was even amplified even more that when you sat down at the table with somebody, you accepted them as your equal. So here is Jesus eating, investing time with sinners and with tax collectors. Now are you getting a better picture of who Jesus includes in his community and how deep the connection goes? Not just an invitation, but it's actually sharing life together, eating together. He goes on, and, and here they're, they're skeptical of that because these are people that God, obviously they say, God could never accept these people into his kingdom because they're such sinners, and we're good. We're good people. We're the ones that are in the church, and so God would accept us. That's kind of what they're mumbling about here. Verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Uh-uh, not me, uh-uh. There's 99 sheep in the field, and that's the first thing that you might think about is that, that phrase, leave the 99, and you say, there's no way I'd leave 99 sheep. I say, cut the losses, let that stupid sheep go. I'm keeping my sheep. That's 99 sheep that I could lose. But Jesus is making a point, isn't he? His point is this. That's crazy what he, this shepherd does. It is crazy. But so is God's love. That's the point. He's saying this, is that God has a reckless abandon for the lost. That's why Jesus is making a community with the lost. And we're going to find out about the 99 a little bit later. We'll talk about those 99, but let's keep on going and think about this. Uh, verse 5. Oh, well, first of all, let me, let, me, let me try to put this in terms. You kind of heard it in the children's message about losing an animal. Let's imagine that you've left the gate open uh, to your house and you let your dog out. Uh, it's the morning, it's 6 a.m., and you forgot that you had taken out your trash last night and the gate is standing open, all right? And now all y'all are thinking, did I leave the gate open? <laughs> Anyways, you go and you make your breakfast and after you let the dog out, get the coffee, and then you realize, ah, the gate's open! So you get your slippers on and you're still in your robe and you go running out to the backyard and you're looking for a little fluffy, 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 Fluffy! And all of a sudden you realize Fluffy's there and sure enough, she was out of there and you're thinking to yourself, what time did I let her out and how far has she gotten? You get in the car, you start driving up and down your street, Fluffy, Fluffy, out the window. You don't see her anywhere. And then all of a sudden you get this picture of Fluffy running across I-35 with traffic going 75 miles an hour and you begin to worry and your heart begins to pound and you, get, and you text the neighborhood email list with a picture and you tell your spouse and your children at home what had happened. They got to get ready to go to work. You're supposed to be getting ready to go to work, but what are you doing? 
You're making flyers. You're flyering the neighborhood all the way around. You keep looking for Fluffy again and again and again, and hour after hour after hour, reckless abandon. You've forgotten about everything. Maybe you've done it with, like, your keys. And I'm sure that you've done it with your phone. It's a scary feeling, isn't it? God and this shepherd has a reckless abandon. And, verse 5, when he finally finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. All right. You know, there's something in this parable that I never noticed before, so clearly, maybe, because I've read this parable and I've studied it again and again and again over the years. But let's do something. All right, class? Verse 5 and 6. Notice all of the subjects and the pronouns, okay? And when I'm going to read it, and you're going to have to remember what a subject and a pronoun is. You're going to say it out loud with me as we read, okay? Say all the subjects and pronouns. Ready? And when finds it, joyfully puts it on, and goes home, then calls friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with have found lost sheep. Now, for you people who have your Bibles open, look at the header of this whole section. What's the name of this parable? The parable of the lost sheep. But look at all the places where God is talking about himself, the shepherd. Maybe God is teaching us in this parable more about his heart and his joy and his church. Maybe it should be named the parable of the reckless, rescuing, rejoicing shepherd. God is giving us a great insight into the heart, and we're going to talk about the lost sheep here in just a second. But I just want you to know that in this church, that's what we talk about. From pulpit to connect group to Bible class is about that kind of a love. Verse 7 says this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God's point is this. God rejoices more over the one sinner who is honest with him, that says, God, I haven't done everything that you told me to do, and I failed completely and totally in not doing the things that you tell me to do. And because that one person who has a repentant heart also believes, God, I know that you can forgive me, and that's the only way God throws a big, big party in heaven and rejoices. That's what lights up God's heart. And that's what lights up our heart at church in this community, too. It's over repentant sinners who have been forgiven freely. And we're going to talk about how that happens through Jesus. How about those 99 others? He's not rejoicing after the 99 other people. Well, who are they? They are the people who have self-affirmed themselves in what they do because they are being judged by the world and they feel like they're being judged by God and they need to perform. And it happens in the most subtle ways and it happens in my life too. But hear me out. The 99 are this. They are the greatest philanthropists in the world who build hospital wings and build wells in Africa and do a bunch of great stuff. And I'm not saying that what they're doing um, is bad. In fact, it does a lot of good. 
But do you know what they're missing? God. In a heart that's broken, in a heart that says, uh, I need God. But instead they say, well, I need, to, I need to affirm myself with my fellow man. And if I can get their applause, if I can get the applause of people, then God has to be happy with me too, Right? And it's not just the billionaire philanthropists that do it, but it's also men and women and children that do this. They need to self-affirm, justify is a church term that we use, their existence. How? By trying to be super dad or super mom, trying to win the approval of their children. Or they're the children who know that mom and dad want them to be really good and successful they're the straight A students, the honor roll students who, who, who do it. Instead of to the glory of God, they do it because they want to be justified by their parents and feel accepted, feel accepted by them. Um, that's what it means to be the 99 others. They don't need God. Do you see that? Because they're working, working, working for justification and the applause of people. And those people, we learn, are going to be more lost than ever because they don't even know that they're lost. But God rejoices over that one sheep that gets lost, that's honest and repents and has heaven open to him. Okay, that's why it says in Isaiah, the the phrase is that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Do you get that now? We are all in deep need of rescue. And I think that we should talk about that one sheep for just a second. In fact, let's talk about sheep. Um, this former shepherd turned pastor had a great quote that I came across this week about sheep. Um, he said this. He said, A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction constantly like a cat or dog never does. Even when you find a lost sheep, the sheep rushes to and fro, will not follow you home. So when... You find it, you must seize it, throw it up over your shoulders, and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. All right, shall we unpack that now? (laughs) What this is saying, and what Jesus is saying, when he uses this picture of a shepherd and sheep, and we always think of like, maybe it was our parents or grandparents, um, you know, know, yellow wallpaper in their house, and they had that picture of Jesus, the great good shepherd, leaning on his staff, looking over well-behaved sheep. But actually, the picture in the Bible about sheep is this. The shepherd and the sheep picture in the Bible is actually a subtle spiritual insult. It is, yeah. Because, you see, sheep are not like your cat when you find your cat and your cat knows you or like your fluffy. And by the way, you're probably wondering what happened to fluffy. You went looking for him all morning and finally you came up to a drainage ditch and you saw Fluffy's little tail wagging in that drainage ditch and you go running all the way there and you find Fluffy just looking wet and nasty and dirty and what do you do? You say Fluffy and Fluffy looks up at you and Fluffy runs to you really fast and you're you're all lit up, you're happy, you're as happy as this shepherd and you grab Fluffy and you give Fluffy a big hug and you don't care that that she's all dirty. You, You say, Fluffy, I missed you. Get into the car. Or get into the trunk, or get into the, the back of the pickup. I'm taking you home. That's an intelligent animal. But a sheep cannot run to the shepherd. Do you hear that? A sheep is completely stupid. 
doesn't know that when the shepherd's there, he's there to rescue it. And so what this is teaching us is that we need to be rescued, but look how deeply we need to be rescued. In church terms, in church words, a sheep cannot contribute to its salvation whatsoever. It can't. It's completely void of any intelligence, and it feeds on whatever it can. In fact, that's what a, the, the same insight from another pastor, a different insight from a, from a different pastor is this, that sheep, when they eat, they eat, to, they eat to live and they live to eat. So they start in one place, and they eat all the grass that they can in the one place. And then where do they go? The next place that he, they find grass. And it doesn't matter if it's on top of a rolling hill that's very safe and very visible, or if that next bite is a foot down from a 40-foot cliff. They'll stick their neck out, and many sheep have fallen to their death. Your career, your family, your relationship, money, um, your status at school, your grades, what is it that you're feeding on? What is it that's, that's completely consuming you and making you go and take that next bite? And as you take that next bite, um, just as an example, here, let's say that you were going after Mr. X or Miss Y, and you want him to ask you to the prom. It's one thing for you to say, I want him to ask me to the prom and for us to have this beautiful relationship together. That's one thing, but it's a completely other thing for you to say that my whole life depends on their love. Do you know why? You're sticking your neck over the, t- over the side of that cliff and taking a bite because what happens when he or she breaks up with you and you've invested your whole heart into that person and found only unconditional love with that person, you're falling and you're going to get crushed. And you're lost. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has gone his own way. But then what's the next line? God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Fluffy will come running to you, but not a sheep. Jesus took on the full burden of everything that you and I aren't and the things that you and I haven't done, and he lived the perfect life in your place so that you don't have to reaffirm yourself with anybody else, not your parents, not your spouse, not your kids, and you can lay all of your faults there at the cross because you contributed absolutely nothing, no good work, No justification to get right with God. And so, like the shepherd, he puts him up on his shoulders and he carries him all the way home. That's the picture that God wants for our church, too. The message that we're going to give every week from the pulpit. Every time that we get together for Bible study, it's going to be based on that unconditional love that God did everything. Okay, let's keep on reading. Verse 8 says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins. And loses one. So imagine what you make in a day. And then you lose that. But it's just a coin back then. That's what they had. And that's how much it was worth. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Sounds like me and my iPhone last week. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this is what God's kingdom is all about. God's kingdom is about reckless sweeping up and down to find it, lighting lamps, doing everything that, 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 that he can to find the lost. It's a reckless love that he has. It's a rescue and it's rejoicing that are at the heart of God's community. 
Um, God's community, you remember who Jesus is sitting around. He's sitting around sinners and tax collectors includes the lost, okay? It includes the lost. Um, and it's, it's, it's not how good that you are, but it's, it's realizing that you are lost before you can really appreciate the community that God has built for you, the community that is Holy Word. And it says right here that, that his community is full of rejoicing. It's full of rejoicing, 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 rejoicing four times in these two short parables that we come together and we rejoice. And so, for instance, when we confess our sins at the beginning of the service, do you know why we sing the song afterwards? Because God is singing that song in heaven and all of the angels are singing that song in heaven when the sinner repents. Um, And that community that we share of repentance and rejoicing, it transcends everything. And I know I sound like a broken record when I say this, but it transcends politics, whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, or an Independent. It transcends your gender, whether you're a man or a woman. It transcends your background, your ethnicity, your skin color. Have you ever seen a good buddy movie before? I call it a buddy movie. Those movies that there's two people that are completely different than each other, right? But then they go through some fire together. They go through some life event together. And at the end, they become best friends or they're like this formidable force at the end that, that, that can't be stopped. But, but they started as enemies or they started just so different than each other. I think about the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Maybe some of you have seen that. John Candy is this, uh, he's this, <laughs> just this goofy, unkempt uh, uh, shower ring salesman. And, and then he is put onto uh, this wild trip, this road trip, with somebody that's completely opposite than him, Steve Martin, who is this professional father, daddy, family guy, okay? And the two, I mean, it's just a, the worst road trip in the world. They start off by having their flight canceled, and then they go to the hotel, and there's a double bed, and they have to share the double bed together. Now you're nodding, okay. And then they go through all of this. They're driving through the back roads of Kansas in the middle of, middle of uh, winter in the back of a truck. I mean, it's a disaster. The whole time they're at each other's throats. But then you remember, if you've ever seen the movie, at the very end, when, when in, let's see, who was it? Steve Martin got on the train, and John Candy was in the, in the train station, and they were leaving each other. They were saying goodbye. And all of the memories kept flooding back in Steve Martin's mind about the times that they had together. That they had actually bonded because they went through the fire together. And they had this thread, the end of the story, this thread that brought them back together because of that thing they had going on. Why do we love stories like that? Why do we love movies like that? It's because it's true. It happened in my life, actually. Um, I was a senior in high school, and I signed up to do a mission trip. I got assigned to go to Kiev, Ukraine. And, it, and, and I had gone to school with Nate, I mean, for four years in high school, but I had never hung out with him, really. He was in a completely different group, let's say, and uh, we didn't do any activities, extracurriculars. Uh, you know, I played a lot of sports, and he just didn't, you know. That's, but, but he, you know, he, we were very different. We went on this trip together, and my senior year, uh, we went to the Ukraine, and we had the greatest time putting together lessons for VBS and English lessons, and for two weeks, getting to know international friends. Nate and I uh, had a life and friendship together there over in Kiev, because there weren't many of us. And then one day, on our off day, we went to the beach, and as we 
we left the group to go to the bathroom because we had to get our swimsuits on. We were looking for the bathroom. We got mugged by five Ukrainian huge construction workers that were coming back from work. And you're saying, Pastor Dan, you could have taken them. I was a beanpole back then, okay? (laughs) Nate wasn't that big either. They held our passports ransom in an alley and separated us and got every dollar, hundreds of dollars from us and a camera. Thank God we were safe at the end and they gave our passports back. But I've never been mugged with anybody else but Nate. (laughs) Never did I have a bond with my football buddies like that. We had something. We shared something that was special and unique. And you know it too because you have friends like that that have had cancer and you've had breast cancer. And when you get together and you run a race with thousands of other people that have had breast cancer, you know what that bond feels like. Right? I know that Pastor Patterson would tell you he's a heart patient and he has a connection with those other people who are heart patients because they've been through the fire together. And you have your own story too with people like that. But do you know what happens here at church? This is a big buddy movie. Because you're not like me, and I'm not like you. Does that give new meaning to the phrase, we all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us has gone his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if you've been away from church, or you've been to church every day for the la- every Sunday for the last 70 years, You're part of this. We're part of this together. We've been through the fire. We're sorry for our sins, and there's rejoicing going on. Look at uh, the the last two points. Why is your church community important? Well, let's fast forward to that part. Number one. Um, Number one, your church community is important, so the 99 can relearn to be lost and rescued again by grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So what I'm asking you is, are you in the camp of the 99 and you're working to justify your existence? You're working as a parent and doing great stuff for your kids, but you're doing it because you want to have the acceptance of man, because you think that the acceptance of man also equates with the acceptance of God. It doesn't. Because in later in Isaiah it says, all of our good works are like filthy rags. You can give it up. The effort, I mean. You can raise kids faithfully. And kids, you can be faithful children to your parents, but that's not a work that gets you right with God. And you need to be, learn to be lost again. And here's the awesome thing about it. When you, if you've fallen into that camp on this side, there's forgiveness and there's grace too. Because when you repent of that self-righteousness, self-justification, self-affirming, you know what God says? You're forgiven and there's a party in heaven for you. On the other side, if you are that one sheep and you say, I can't come into a community like a building like this and feel like I'm part of this group. Well, it, if you feel that way, then we have a problem as a church. Because did you see who God included in his community? He included the sinners and the tax collectors and the people that were a long shot to be part of church. Jesus says they are the definition of who I want in church. And it is the definition of who he wants in your heart as well. And if you've committed crime after crime after crime and that you think that the pile of your sins is just way too high for God to forgive, then believe in Jesus again because he has taken all the sins of the world. For God so loved the whole world 
Lay them at Jesus' cross. And when you do, humbly repent. God says, I love that. And there's a party in heaven for you. And there's rejoicing within these walls as well. I get it. I get it from people that have been burnt by church before. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe it was the pastor who is not perfect. Maybe it's the people who are not perfect. Maybe it's uh, the style, which isn't your preference. Maybe it's uh, the color of the drapes on the windows. Whatever it is at church that you've been burnt by before. Look past all of that and find the cross. Because when we have Jesus at our church and we're welcomed home by a shepherd like that and we have a welcome home moment because of the cross that transcends everything that we aren't, then we found church. And you found church again. And until the day that we get to go to heaven and have that party with with Jesus and God and, and have the rejoicing happen there, we can have it right here. Every week. Every connect group. And until then, until until we make it to heaven, welcome home. Amen.